morning, Woods Edge. Today I am preaching at Kingdom City Church in the southwestern part of Houston. They are part of the Woods Edge family of churches. But today we begin our 40-day prayer challenge, and I wanted to talk with you a little bit about that. So beginning today, September 1 through October 10th, we will have our 40 days of pressing into God in prayer and fasting. Now, fasting, as I have been saying, ask God what that looks like for you. It might involve food. It might involve social media. It might involve television. Just seek the Lord about what that looks like for you. Hopefully, you've already heard from God about that. And then we want to all be pressing in with God and, and taking time with God each day. And, if you already do that, maybe spend more time, but for the next 40 days, each of us, we're meeting alone with the Lord, unhurried time to draw near. And then I am asking all of us to read Mark Batterson's book on prayer. It is broken into 40 days, and so today, September 1, you would read the first day, and right on through the 40 days. Some of you have already read this book once or twice, and you're gonna read Jim Simla's book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, which is not broken into 40 days. And then, prayer service, beginning this Wednesday night, the six Wednesday nights in our 40 days. If you're in town, I am asking you, please join us, because God loves it when His people gather together for united prayer. A church, God is gonna use this in all of our lives. We're gonna see that God is gonna draw us to himself. He's gonna work in our lives. He's gonna work in our families, in our church, in our city. And it's gonna be so exciting. And don't miss out on it. Together, let's seek the Lord. Hey, good morning, church. <clears throat> let, me pray for us as we, uh, let me pray for us as we begin. God, we confess now that we are in sincere and desperate need of you, and as we prepare to open your word, we ask that, Holy Spirit, you would prepare us to be good and diligent listeners, and that you would give us eyes to see, so that we could behold your beauty in your scriptures, and that by the power of your spirit, you would change us as we take it in. Father, I'm mindful this morning of what I read yesterday, yet another story of a mass shooting out in uh, West Texas, and God, our hearts are broken by this kind of violence. And so God, I ask that you would be present with the families of those affected, that you would give them peace, that you would give them hope, you would provide healing where it's needed. And God, I ask that you would make us a people of peace. And God, I ask that you would make us a nation full of people of peace. We recognize that it's really only by the power of your spirit and your hand moving that we will be rid of this kind of violence. And so, God, we plead with you for it, and we say, Christ Jesus, come quickly. And, God, we thank you that your church is meeting faithfully all over the world today. Pray for Kingdom City Church, where our pastor Jeff is preaching. God, would you give him joy in his preaching, and would you give those people joy in their worship? God, we thank you that there is just one church, and that we are privileged to be part of the global people of God. So, Father, as we open the word now, illuminate it for us. We need you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Would you stand with me as we read the passage today? I'm going to be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 17b. I'm going to bounce around just a little bit. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 17. The Apostle Paul here writes, When you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, while another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for your judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat. So in this passage, we have the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth. If you've read First and Second Corinthians, both letters addressed to this church, you know that this is a pretty ornery church. There is a lot of drama happening in Corinth. And Paul has a lot of correctives that he has to offer. And in this particular passage, he's talking about the posture of the people's hearts and their public behavior when they get together for public worship. So when the church at Corinth in Greece would get together weekly as we are now, the way that they were behaving and the posture of their hearts, Paul says, it's wrong. It's misaligned. And, and so he offers correction to that church. He says, in fact, he says, the way you're behaving, the way that you're worshiping, when you come together, God isn't even giving you over to joy in worship. He's giving you over to judgment, to discipline, because of the way you're behaving. He, said, he goes so far as to say, it would be better, in fact, if you just didn't even come here. It would be better if you just stayed home because the way that you're acting when you come to the public assembly to worship with the people of God, your, your heart's posture is so off and your behavior is so poor that it's not even for your benefit to be here. And so he has really strong words for them. Now this passage has some hard sayings and certainly raises some questions for us. For instance, Paul, is, Paul seems to be saying that because of the way that this church was taking communion, that people were getting sick and even dying. And so that, that seems sort of spectacular to us. Um, I'm actually not going to endeavor to, to answer those questions in this passage today. But what I want us to do is take this passage and then become somewhat self-reflective and ask ourselves, how is it that we, when we come together to worship, how is it that we may be like the Corinthians? Are there some things about the posture of our heart? Are, are there some things about the way that we behave in public worship that would commend us to, to pivot, to make some changes, to, to rethink the way that we're behaving 
in worship. Now, our, our setting is a little bit different. Our context is different. So Paul is talking to the Corinthians, and he's saying things like, hey, some of you are coming and just eating and even getting drunk on communion wine while other people haven't even had anything yet. Now, here at Wood's Edge, we've got like tiny wafers and Welches. No one's going to get drunk off of Welches here. So, so what he's saying to the Church of Corinth doesn't precisely translate to our context, but there are things in our context that are equally applicable. And so I just want us to ask the question today, how is it that we, as those who get together as the people of God, how is it that we are behaving in worship so that we might honor God in our worship and not bring judgment upon ourselves? If you're new to church, uh, if you first time here, maybe you're exploring the Christian faith, you came at an invitation of a neighbor or a friend, some of the things we do here may seem novel to you or foreign or even weird. And I'm hopeful that as we talk about some of the elements of our worship gathering today, that it'll help you understand what it is we're doing and why we're doing it. And if you've been in church your whole life, you grew up, you come here every week, you know the dance, you know the rhythm, you know when to stand, when to sit, you've got the stuff memorized. It may be for you that when you come here on Sunday to worship, you're kind of just going through the motions because you've got muscle memory working. You're just on autopilot because you do this every week, and so you don't have to be thoughtfully engaged. And so maybe for some of us, it's a time to really just think introspectively and reflectively about what is it we're doing here and why we're doing it. Now, when we look at the church at Corinth, we see some things about those people. Apparently, they were lazy. They were kind of lackadaisical. At times, they were selfish and unfocused. They elevated their own individual preferences over the good of the worshiping community. And so Paul says, some of you are coming and you're just glutting yourself on the bread and wine while others don't get anything. And he's just saying, hey, if you're hungry, just go home and eat. And when you come here, be thoughtful that we are in a place of public worship. Right? So we, we see this about the Corinthians, that they're just going through the motions of public worship, but devoid of the correct meaning, without the right heart posture. And so again, he says to the Corinthians, it would be better for you just not even to gather if you're going to behave like this. Just don't even come. But that's not precisely what he says. What he actually says is, rather than staying home, which would be better than coming and behaving like you are, the better thing would be to come with the right postured heart and behave in a way that's appropriate and fitting for the people of God as they worship together. But I think there's some ways that, that we can be like the Corinthians, even if we've got Welches and wafers, and so it's a little different. There's still some ways that we can be like the Corinthians. For instance, I think that a lot of us can be prone to come in here a little bit lazy. I'll, I'm, I'll speak for myself here. If you come here every week, if this is part of your rhythm and your discipline, you can be tempted to come in here a little bit lazy. You just come in as a matter of habit and routine and you go through the motions and you may not be totally checked in. My mother-in-law told me a story recently. You may have heard this, um, but I, I found it a really fascinating illustration of, of human nature. And she was telling me about this famous Smith family pot roast, renowned recipe in the community. And the youngest Smith daughter, she would dutifully watch her mom prepare the pot roast every Sunday. And as a student of the art of cooking and trying to learn what it means to be a Smith cook, she's noting copiously everything that her mom does, the seasoning she uses, the ratios, the proportions. And she notes that the first thing that her mom does every time she prepares a roast is she cuts off both ends of the roast. And so she asks her mom, Mom, what's the function of that? Why is it that we cut off the ends of the roast? What does that do? Does that seal the meat? And her mom says, I don't actually know, but that's just how my mom always did it. That's how I learned, and so that's what I do. 
So she calls her grandma. She says, Grandma, tell me, why is it that with the Smith family pot roast, why do we cut off the ends? And her grandmother said, I don't actually know. Just that's the way that my mom did it, and so that's the way that I do it. So she calls her great-grandmother. She says, listen, you got to help me because I asked my mom and she didn't know. I asked my grandmother, she didn't know. What is it about our recipe that causes us to want to cut the ends off? What does that do for the meat? And her great-grandmother paused for a second, and then she said, well, when I was first married, we had a really small oven, and so I had to get a small pan, and the roast wouldn't fit, so I cut off the ends. And so it's a silly story, but, but it actually reflects the way that we behave in our life a lot of times, right? We just do things, and we don't exactly know why we do them that way. So let me give you an example. When you load the dishwasher, do you put knives in, blade up or blade down? Do you put steak knives in the same way that you put butter knives in? If you're the kind of person who puts a butter knife in, blade down, are you not concerned about the surface area and the scrubbing capacity of the bubbles that are going to be circulating through there? If you put a steak knife in, blade down, because you don't want someone to get stuck by it when they reach in, are you not concerned about bending the end of the knife? Or maybe you're not neurotic like I am, and you don't actually think through how to put in knives into the dishwasher. You just do it. And there's probably two kinds of people here. I know some of you are thinking through it like this. And so, but, but the point here, right, is that sometimes we do things, and we don't really know why we're doing it that way. We're just kind of willy-nilly, or that's just how we were taught, and we don't understand the reasoning. Now, I will tell you, after the last service, I was talking to someone out there, and they said, you know what, I had a cousin who they would put the steak knives in point up, and one time she tumbled backward and fell on it and ended up with a very uncomfortable rectal surgery to deal with that. So, since we're talking about knife safety, <laughs> maybe think about going point down on the steak knives. All right, that's apparently the right way to do that. Yeah, amen, indeed. I read a book this year by a guy named Alan Noble, and uh, he wrote this book called Dis uh, Disruptive Witness. If you're a reader, I would recommend this book. It'll be a top 10 book for me this year. He takes up this discussion of what he calls thin belief versus thick belief. And he says a lot of us live our lives with thin beliefs, like the pot roast and the way we do knives. He says, generally, thin belief is superficial. We fail to grasp its assorted justifications and reasonings, and therefore we're unable to articulate it fully. That's a thin belief. So for instance, maybe you have a particular political view. Maybe you have a view on a particular policy, and you're passionate about it. It's earnestly held. In fact, you're so passionate about it, you're willing to forward it in emails to family and friends. You're willing to circulate it on Facebook or social media or whatever. But if someone were to question you on that particular policy and say, hey, can you tell me what are the philosophical underpinnings of that view? Can you tell me, what are, the, what are the policy implications if that is taken to its logical extreme? Does that view sound in rationalism or in enlightenment? Is that really a view of democratic socialism or socialism or democracy? Is that a capitalist view? If you can't answer those questions, it may be that that's a thin belief. Passionately held, but maybe you just don't understand it comprehensively enough to articulate it fully. So for me, most of my political views are going to be fairly thinly held because I, I'm not super well-read or thoughtful enough to be able to get into a deep, meaningful policy discussion about a lot of that stuff. I spend my time thinking more about the important things like how I put knives in the dishwasher. And you can't do it all. So. so we have these thin beliefs in our life. And I've realized that in, in my public worship, I have some thin beliefs that, that manifest themselves. So let me give you an example. A couple years ago, I was in a service just like this, and we were singing a song just like the one we sang today. Remember the first song we sang, it had the word hallelujah in it. 
And I was singing earnestly, hallelujah, hallelujah. What, is, what does that word mean? I don't know what hallelujah means. Is that an, what am I saying? Is that an English word? Is that a Greek word? Is it a Hebrew word? I, I mean, I'm meaning it to have a certain, I'm ascribing a certain meaning to it, but I don't know what that word actually means. And so I had to go look it up. And so I looked it up, and here's what I found. Hallelujah is a transliteration of a Hebrew word. Now, transliteration is where we bring an entire word from a language. We adopt the entire word. So, for instance, translation, on the other hand, would be uh, green in Spanish is verde. But in English, we have a word that means green. It's green. And so we translate verde to green. That's a translation. But the Hebrew word, hallelujah, does not have an analog in English. We don't have a word that captures that meaning. So we transliterate it. We bring the whole word over, right? So this Hebrew word, it's actually kind of a compound word in two main parts. The first part uh, is really rooted in the Hebrew verb hallel, which means to praise. And so I don't know anything about Hebrew grammar. Uh, maybe some of you do, but I had to Google it. So here's what I found. Hallel, in this verb form, is second person imperative plural which means that it's, it's exhortative. It's an instruction. It's, it's not praise. It's praise. And it's not first person. It's third person plural. It's let us praise. So hallel to praise, ooh, hallelujah is plural. So let us praise Yah, hallelujah. Yah is a truncated name of God. Recall that in the Old Testament, the high and holy name of God is Yahweh. And Jews wouldn't say that name. They wouldn't even write that name. They would truncate it. They would abbreviate it. And so what we have here is a word that says, hallelujah, let us praise God. And so now, when I sing hallelujah, I, it's a thicker belief. I used to mean it. I was passionate about it. I just couldn't tell you what it meant. It was a thin belief. Now it's become thicker. Right? What about the word amen? Have you ever prayed a prayer and ended it with amen? Wait, is it amen or is it Amen. Is amen an English word? What does amen mean? Now, wait a minute. I want to know how to pray. I end 100% of my prayers with amen. In fact, I don't think a prayer can officially end until you've said amen. And if you say amen, you can't pray anything else because you've already finished. <laughs> That's how I pray. But wait a minute. I recall there's this place in the Bible where the disciples ask Jesus. They say, Jesus, how then should we pray? Teach us to pray. Remember this? Matthew 6, Luke 11. He says, okay, I'll teach you. Here's how it goes. We say it every week here, so you know it, right? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now, if you went to the end, I want to ask you a question. Don't turn there. I'm just going to ask you a question. Does Jesus say amen at the end of that prayer? He does not. Now, wait a minute. Jesus taught us how to pray and didn't say amen at the end? Why do I say amen all the time? Is that inappropriate? No, it's not. But the problem is, I just don't know what amen means. I say it because that's what we say. That's a thinly held belief. So, like hallelujah, I went and looked it up a few years ago, and here's what it means. It actually, it sounds both in Hebrew and Greek. There are versions in each language. So we see it in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it really just means, so be it, or it is true. So if I pray, God help me, amen. What I'm saying is, God truly help me. It's true, I need your help. This is true, so be it, God. Make it happen. So that's one way we can use it. Now, in some churches, in some church traditions, there's more of a call and response kind of preaching. So maybe the preacher makes a point, and if the congregation likes it, what do they say? Amen. And what they're saying is, I affirm that. That's true. I agree with that. 
And that's, that's what amen means. So, yes, it's good and right that we should use amen in our prayers, even though Jesus didn't instruct us to. It has a rich tradition in the Christian church. Uh, it was just a thinly held belief. So hopefully, if you were like I was, and you were ignorant as to those words, after today, you can have a thicker use of hallelujah and amen. Amen. So here's the thing. Rather than us coming in here and lazily going through the motions, we can engage more deeply with one another in public worship and more deeply with our God if we would stop to embrace the deep meaning and elements that our worship have. There, there is depth to what we're doing, even if we don't recognize it on a weekly basis. So here's what I would say. We don't gain greater maturity as Christians simply by going beyond our Sunday routines and rituals, but rather by going deeper into them. Now, it may be that you say, well, yeah, but look, Christian, you can't, you can't become mature as a Christian just by coming to church occasionally. You can't just come on Sundays and expect to gain Christian maturity. You need to be reading the scriptures outside of church. You need to be praying regularly. You need to be serving. You need to be meeting with others. And I would say all those things are good tools to lead to Christian maturity. But we don't just gain maturity by going beyond the Sunday gathering, but rather by going deeper into it. There is so much meat here for us. There's so much meaning in what we do. So I remember a time early in my Christian life, I was a late teenager, had just come to faith, super excited, super passionate, started going to church a lot, like an uncomfortable amount. I mean, I was like always at church. True story, senior in high school, Friday nights, rather than going out to spend time with friends, I would literally sit at home and read systematic theology and Bible commentary. Now, you're probably saying, yeah, but also you just weren't invited out. And so you had to fill the time somehow. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But I was going to church a lot, which means that I got to learn the rhythms and routines. I memorized how to do church, right? So I would be in a worship service, and I got to the point where I could sing the songs with my eyes closed which means I didn't need to look at the hymnal. I didn't need to look at the screen because I had memorized it because I go there a lot. And, it, and I remember, though, if I saw someone out of the periphery who had to have their eyes open, <laughs> I know a thing or two about you. You don't come here often, do you? You're, you're not as regular of an attender as I am. And so there was a bit of just pride that rose up in me because I had memorized the words and someone else had to look at the screen. Now, hopefully... I have outgrown that. Hopefully none of you have ever been as despicable as I was in that stage of life. But just in case any of you have ever had any kind of spiritual pride in your own life, maybe today you recognize that, man, you know what? I've been singing hallelujah for like 40 years, and I do not know what that word means until today. So maybe there's just like some cold humility that we can take today, recognizing that all of us can go deeper into our worship. There's none of us here who have fully plumbed the depths of what is offered as we as the community of God come to worship together. Now, laziness is one way that we can be like the Corinthians, but there's another way that I think I'm probably even more guilty of, and that's being critical. I think a lot of us, I know that a lot of us struggle with public worship. And part of it is because we all have varying preferences. Some people love lights and amplified music, and smoke machines and lasers. That setting is great for them. And other people like hymns and hymnals and robes and orderliness to their service. And typically, you're going to get one or the other and not both, which means that for most people, your preferences aren't going to be met. In fact, I'll go as far as to say this. Zero people in here are having all of their preferences met in, term, in terms of our style and the elements of our worship because none of us have the exact same preferences. 
In fact, when you think about it globally, you would be hard-pressed to find 100 people in the world who have the same preference as you do. So anytime you're part of a public worship gathering with more than one person, just know that somebody is feeling perturbed or disappointed that all of their preferences aren't being met. One thing I love about Wood's Edge is the growing diversity we have here. I've heard Pastor Jeff say that there are as many as 50 nations represented at Wood's Edge. And that's, that is a beautiful thing. I love it that we have brothers and sisters here from Africa. African Americans and Africans. Like first generation, I moved here from Nairobi last month. I love that. I love that twice a year, as someone who is not a proficient Spanish speaker, I love that twice a year, at least, we as a full congregation uh, sing in Spanish. And we incorporate Spanish into our service. I love that. That is good for us. And it's particularly good for us because you know what it reminds us about our preferences? It reminds us that our preferences are only that. They're just our preferences. They're not very important and they're not widely shared. Do you know where white people are not going to be the majority very soon? So I'm a white man. I speak English as a first language with this particular accent, which means I'm from a particular place, particular cultural background. You know where I am not going to be the majority very soon? Besides Texas. I'm not going to be the majority in Texas. You know where else? Heaven. Heaven is not going to be majority white. The global church does not look like me predominantly. And they don't speak like me. They don't have the same preferences that I do. Which means that when all tribes and all tongues and all people are gathered around the throne of God, worshiping together, it's going to be a very diverse expression. That's what heaven looks like. It's good. So here's what I would say. If you come to church, if you're tempted to come to church sometimes and you just feel a little bit frustrated because your preferences aren't met, just receive it as a kindness of God because he's preparing you for heaven. Guess what? Heaven's not going to look like your preferences. God is not going to consult with you on the order of worship before he holds the first service, right? What he's going to do is he's going to transform your preferences so that what's happening there, you love and so as we, as we fail to have our preferences met, we're being prepared to be with Christ. And in the, the global gathering of believers throughout all of history, that is a good thing for us. If we come in here purely as consumers of content, then we are going to have a thin and anemic experience of public worship. It's not going to be healthy. If that's our position, that we as congregants come in with certain needs and preferences, and we're just looking for the best church brand that can most, faith, most faithfully accommodate my preferences, then we've missed the point of gathered worship. What is the church? What is the church? Is this building the church? Are the speakers the church? The programs, the logo? None of that is the church. Church, the New Testament word, ecclesia, means the called out ones. Those who are called out from their homes to worship together in a public setting. That's what church means. We are the church when we're called in here together. And so we don't look for a church brand that most accommodates our needs. We're not consumers looking for content. We're worshipers who want to worship the God of all creation. And speaking for myself here, and probably some of you as well, we would be well served by remembering what the church is, why we gather, and why it is that we do what we do when we get here. If being here, if being here every Sunday morning isn't primarily about catering to my preferences, what is it about? So I want to look at three elements of our worship today and just talk about what's the biblical basis, why do we do this thing, okay? So the greeting, the preaching, and communion. If you come here to Wood's Edge any Sunday, you're going to get at least those three things. 
They are mainstays of our worship gathering and, frankly, most gatherings of most churches around the world. So let's look at those three things in turn. First, the church greeting. The church greeting, I think, has to be the bane of existence for everyone in the church. Nobody likes the church greeting because, listen, if you're an introvert, you hate the church greeting. It is forced small talk to a group of strangers that you don't know and won't see again. It is draining to you. You do not want to be made to just chit-chat people for 40 seconds. In fact, I saw in Christianity Today, which is a magazine, they have a headline, The Introvert's Guide to Surviving Church Greeting Time. Listen, I went on Amazon. There is a book published for introverts to learn how to survive the church greeting time. This is real. Now, if you're an extrovert, you don't get it. You're confused right now. But you know what? Extroverts, you don't like the church greeting time either because it's only 40 seconds. You, you've only greeted two rows. You've got six sections. I want to work the room. Give me 40 minutes and then let's move on. What am I supposed to do with 40 seconds? So half of you want more. Half of you want it to end. Nobody's happy. Well, if none of us like the church greeting, why does every church do a church greeting? Hey, welcome to Wood's Edge. Say hello to someone around you. Well, let's take a look. Romans 16. What does the Apostle Paul say to the church at Rome? When you gather, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. What he's saying is, listen, this is meaningful what's happening. This isn't just a social norm. Now, I know in Houston, Texas, we're tempted to think like, oh, yeah, it's church. That's what you do on Sunday. That's what people do. This is not socially normal. Right? This, is, this is strange, historically, what we're doing, to meet in this room and sing these songs together and, and, and go through these motions. And Paul's saying, this is important. Greet each other. The church at large greets you. Now listen, when I look at this passage, here's what I'm thinking. You don't like the church greeting time? It could be worse. It could be worse. Hey, welcome to Wood's Edge. Why don't you kiss someone around you? I may be looking for a new church. I don't want that. Now listen. In this passage, the emphasis is not on the word kiss. The emphasis is on the word holy. Greet each other with a holy kiss. Here's what Paul's saying. When you come together, according to your custom, however it is that people greet each other where you live, do that in a holy way. Do it in a sanctified way. Don't do it as just a dutiful, perfunctory kind of thing that you go through the motions because that's what the worship leader told you to do. Don't have a thin belief about this. Have some thickness to it. Why do we greet each other? Well, first, because the Bible tells us to greet each other. So if the Bible says to greet each other, we should do that. But also, we're reminded of some really important things when we greet each other. Have you considered, by the way, the idea that when the greeting time comes, that the person behind you, they may not hear another kind word the entire week? Have you considered that? Does that change the way that you are inclined to greet somebody? I don't know about you, but I've come, there have been days that I've come to church in my life where I'm feeling down. I'm feeling depressed. I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling super self-aware and self-conscious. I don't want to be seen. I don't want to be in a large group of people when I'm feeling that way. And I especially don't want to have to be forced to say hello to people. But you know what happens when I'm feeling like that? When you greet me with the kindness of Christ, it reminds me of the gospel. It reminds me that I'm a beloved child of God who's welcome here. If you are a child of God, if you've placed your faith in Jesus and you come here as a worshiper, you are welcome and wanted here. And so when we greet each other, we remind one another of that truth, which is so easy to forget. And if, if you're not a follower of Christ, if, you, if you've come here as a visitor, listen, Christians, if there are people visiting our meeting, 
our gathering, our congregation, who don't yet follow Jesus, what an important opportunity for us to be able to embody the kindness of Christ, even in a small act, to greet someone warmly and humbly and genuinely, to demonstrate for them, in a small measure, the kindness of God, to convey to them, you are loved, you are welcome, we are glad you're here. This may be the only time they ever visit church in their life. Do we want to miss that opportunity simply because we don't like the social awkwardness of a 40-second meet and greet? We don't. We don't want to miss that. Also, the greeting reminds us of the centrality of hospitality in the Christian life. Do you know that hospitality is a major component of the Christian life? In fact, the Bible lists hospitality as a spiritual gift. It's a specifically enumerated gift that the Spirit of God gives to the people of God to embody the gospel to the world. This is a big deal, what we're talking about here. And not just hospitality at church, but hospitality in our homes, in our apartments, the places we live, our neighborhoods, our workplaces. Carrying the hospitality of God is a big deal. Now, I read another book this year uh, that, again, if you're a reader, I would recommend this one as well, by a lady named Rosaria Butterfield. It's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key, and it's, it's really about hospitality. And she's got a pretty remarkable story. She is a self-described introvert. Here's what she says. She says, we introverts miss out on great blessings when we excuse ourselves from practicing hospitality because it exhausts us. I often find people exhausting, but over the years I've learned how to pace myself, how to prepare for the private time necessary to recharge, and how to grow in discomfort. Knowing your personality and your sensitivities does not excuse you from ministry. It means that you need to prepare for it differently than others might. So introverts... Figure out a way to charge up your batteries before you get here. Extroverts, figure out a way to get it out of your system when you get out of here. The foyer's full of people every week. You can work that room all day long. <laughs> in the greeting that we do here each week, we are reminded that we've been welcomed in as sons and daughters, adopted into the family of God, and given the peace of God, which is why some churches call it passing the peace instead of the greeting. We're reminding each other that the peace of God is upon us because of what Christ has done for us. And so the church greeting, we do it every week. We also do preaching every week. Now, preaching, it's not as strange in form because preaching looks pretty familiar to things that we encounter a lot in our lives. So, um, for instance, depending on what denomination or tradition you're in, uh, preaching may look like a classroom lecture. It may look like a motivational speech. It may look more like a pep rally. It may look more like a TED Talk. But whatever it looks like, it looks like things that are similar to things that we engage in all the time, at school, at work, on the internet. It's, this isn't foreign to sit and listen to somebody, right? But we do it every week. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, so yeah, it's one thing to listen to a, a teacher at school who's credentialed and qualified to teach me about a topic. It's one thing to listen to a TED Talk where someone has some kind of uh, expertise that they've published on and can speak about but why are you here? <laughs> why are we listening to you? What's the vetting process around here? How do guest speakers get chosen at this place? Why do we do this? And it's, it's really interesting because I think that we listen to preaching a lot more than we realize. So let me ask you a question. Do you listen to Fox News? You're getting preached at. You think you're not? You listen to CNN or MSNBC? You're taking in some sermons. You think you're not? You are. Listen to what Charles Schulz said. Remember Charles Schulz? He was the creator of Peanuts, you know, Charlie Brown. Here's what he said. He said, cartooning is preaching, and I think we have a right to do some preaching. You think you're watching the Charlie Brown Christmas special. You're listening to a sermon. 
all the time we are listening to preaching. And the problem isn't uh, that we're listening to preaching, it's how we're listening to preaching. And so what's happened in our modern habits is that they've changed. And so when we come to church and we hear this particular kind of preaching, we are formed by our habits that are developed outside of here. So, um, for instance, we have become addicted to entertainment. Do you know that? Do you feel that? We're addicted to entertainment. We've got live on demand, web streaming, click here now, shareable videos, constant access to the internet, all the time, we're addicted to entertainment. The ingenuity of mankind has officially brought about the end of boredom, declared Time Magazine in 2015. Time Magazine looked at a Microsoft study and saw that since the year 2000, the human attention span had dropped by a third from 12 seconds to 8 seconds, shorter than that of a goldfish, the magazine pointed out. Because we're being formed by a kind of media that is sound bites and click here now and swipe right and move on. So I read an article the other day, this guy named Beckett Cook. I don't actually know this guy. He wrote a book, and that's why he was interviewed. And he made this point that I thought was really helpful. Here's what he says about it. He says, look, if you're going to be on social media or Netflix for an hour, you need to read the Bible for an hour because you've just been lied to, and now you need the truth. <laughs> We're getting some amens about that. There's agreement here. There's agreement. We're constantly just deluged with messages, with preaching, with worldviews, and we're not always very um, sensitive to it. We're not always very thoughtful or discerning in the way that we consume it because it's like cotton candy. You, just, you can just fit a lot of it in your mouth really quick, right? It doesn't fill you up, but you're getting saturated with its contents. And so interestingly... If instead of 2019, this was like 1550 or 1650, if you were listening to a Christian sermon at a Christian worship service back then, you know how long the sermon would last? Two to three hours. In Acts 20, the apostle Paul begins preaching and it says he goes on until midnight. That service didn't start at 11.30 p.m. People used to preach for a while. But we've become accustomed to a 30-minute sermon. Now listen, I get it. I sit in these seats every week. I've been, to, I've been part of a lot of churches. I, I have like a sixth sense. I know when 30 minutes is up. And so if we're at 33 minutes, I'm like, ooh, we're about 10% over here. Let's land the plane, buddy. All right, let's wrap it up. I've got lunch to get to. Getting a little antsy. I have a short attention span. So we've been, we've been formed by our habits modernly. And here's what it's done. It's caused us to treat preaching as entertainment. We have come here expecting to be entertained, amused. We want to be surprised with new information, but not offended. Don't say anything that will offend me, but give me just enough new information to keep it interesting. I want literary references that match things that I've read, but not all the time because I also want to hear things from books I haven't read. I want to see some movie clips occasionally. I don't want to see any movie clips. Right? We all have preferences that we bring to this thing, and it causes us to treat it like entertainment. So why do we preach? What is the basis for what we're doing here? Let's take a look at a couple quick passages. Mark 3, 14. And Jesus appointed 12 apostles so that, why? Why did he appoint them? So that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. 
Acts 5.24. And every day, listen, Sunday? No. Every day in the temple and from house to house. Wait, just at church? No. And from house to house every day, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. 2 Timothy 4.2, the Apostle Paul says to his young protege, Timothy, preach. 2 Corinthians 4.5, Paul says, preach Christ. Romans 10.13-14, here's what Paul says. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. Hallelujah. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him? of whom they've not heard, and how will they hear unless someone preaches? Man, preaching is pretty central to the expression of the Christian life in the New Testament. And so that's why we do it. But listen, we also do it because preaching is the territory for the Holy Spirit. Here's what I mean. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon, famous British preacher, said in the 1900s. Here's what he said. The power that is in the gospel does not lie in the eloquence of the preacher. Otherwise, men would be converters of souls. Nor does it lie in the preacher's learning. Otherwise, it could consist of the wisdom of men. We might preach till our tongues rotted, till we should exhaust our lungs and die, but never a soul would be converted unless there were mysterious power going with it, the Holy Ghost changing the will of man. We preach, A, because the Bible instructs it, and B, because it is a grace of God. It is a territory at which he re- under which he releases his Holy Spirit to do work in our hearts. You know what? If you're here and you have trusted in Christ, if you have saving faith in Jesus, if you have come to see him as Lord, do you know what that means? Absolutely. It means that at some point in your life, you listened to preaching in which the Holy Spirit was active and working to overcome your will and change your heart. If your heart has changed, it's because the Spirit was at work in preaching. And the reason I know that is because if it was just preaching, if it was just the articulation of words without the power of the Holy Spirit, your will wouldn't have been changed. We're not convinced into the kingdom of God. We are regenerated by the power of the Spirit. How does God design that we should be be regenerated? How does he intend that we should embrace the gospel, but that we should hear it when it is preached? Now, wait a minute. Does God only gift certain people to preach? Well, he gifts certain people with particular gifts to preach and teach, and those people typically will do more than average preaching and teaching. But every believer... Every believer who's an ambassador of the gospel is empowered to be a preacher. Listen, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your community, if any of those people don't yet know the love of God in Christ and have not yet set their trust in him, friend, hear this promise. All who are called to God will come to God. Zero people that God intends to bring to himself will be left out. But how will they come by belief. And how will they believe? By hearing. And what does it take for them to hear? It takes preaching. And so we preach because the Spirit is at work in it for the salvation of men and women and joy in our hearts. And so that's why we preach. And guess what? Preaching is not entertainment. I want to share an encouragement with you. Now, if you're new here, you don't know me. My name's Christian. I'm not on staff here. I'm not a full-time pastor. Um, I'm not a pro. 
I'm a congregant. My family and I are members here. We've been here for five years. Um, and I preach occasionally when our pastor Jeff is out. So I want to share an encouragement with you, um, recognizing that I receive a lot more preaching than I deliver. So I want to share this as a hearer, not as a speaker, okay? Here's the encouragement. When we reduce preaching to simply a performance for which we will offer praise or criticism based on our impression of it, we have missed the point entirely. We have totally missed the point of why we preach and what it is if that's how we treat it. Preaching is not about entertainment. We believe that God speaks powerfully through his word, by his spirit, and that God has called individuals to serve as broken mouthpieces to articulate the word of God locally to communities of men and women who either are worshiping the living God or who want to worship the living God and don't know it yet. This is what God has appointed for us to do. Now, if we're joined in communal worship, as we here are today, so if you're here, you're part of communal worship, this is a worship gathering, we will do well to listen carefully, as though listening to a dearly beloved brother who has an urgent and earnest message for us that was considered deeply in contemplation and sought fervently in prayer. Now, listen, here's the thing. I recognize, okay, I'm an example it, it may not always be well articulated, or it may. It may be very precisely stated, or maybe it's just close enough. It might seem really timely for you, or it may seem inapt based on the season of life you're in. But here's the thing. If the preaching is faithful to the scripture, it is God's grace and provision to you today. Even when you're forced to listen to a below-average sermon by a guest preacher, it is God's grace to you. Because it's the articulation of the word of God empowered by the spirit of God. That is a gift to us. Preaching is not entertainment. So we have to be careful. We should not be unduly enamored if the preaching is phonetically pleasing. And we should not be disenchanted or disheartened if it's not our favorite style. Not, not every sermon you're going to love. You're not going to love every illustration. Sometimes you're going to have had a late night and you're going to feel sleepy. I get it. We're humans. We all have preferences. But what we're saying here is this is not about entertainment. It's about an opportunity to interact with the Spirit of God by receiving His Word. We will have greater spiritual benefit if we will come to the preaching weekly with a right posture and a right understanding. It will make us better recipients of the Word of God. Hey, listen, you've chosen to dedicate and invest an hour and a half of your life today. And if you come every week, over a year, that adds up, right? So if we're going to make that investment, let's make it a good investment. Let's not waste it. Let's be thoughtful and engaged. Let's have a thick understanding of preaching and be good recipients of the word. In preaching, we're reminded that God spoke creation into being, that by the word of his mouth, he sustains all things, and by the word of his mouth, he revealed himself to us. By the power of the spoken gospel, he's awakened our hearts, and he's enlightened us both to the depth of our sin and to the sweetness of our salvation. All of this by the preaching of the word. And so we want to receive the preaching as those who are humble and hungry, not as those who are haughty and hard to please. We have to learn to check our preferences at the door. Should we be, should we be discerning listeners? Absolutely. Always be discerning. Acts 17, I think, the Bereans, they would listen to the preaching of the word, and you know what they would do? They would open their Bible and check it to make sure that it was accurate and faithful. Let's always be discerning listeners, but let's not be critical listeners, critical in spirit. 
Harold Best was the dean of music at Wheaton College, and he, I don't know where he said this, but I've, I've seen it and heard it several times, and it's always stuck with me. Here's what he says. He says, the mature Christian is easily edified. The mature worshiper is easily edified. The mature worshiper is easily taught. The mature worshiper easily engages with the Spirit of God in public worship. So maybe if you leave a church service and your spouse or your friend or whatever, they say, hey, how'd you like church today? Eh, it was okay. Eh, too many hymns. Eh, not enough hymns. Too loud, too quiet. Too many literary illustrations. Not enough literary illustrations. Sermon was okay. A little boring. Liked it a lot. It was great. We're just giving assessment, right, on how we liked it, how we received it how it attended to our preferences. And if we want to become mature worshipers, we have to learn to be easily edified. You know what? Even when you have to listen to a subpar sermon, you've got to learn to be easily edified because it's the word of God proclaimed to you, but empowered by the spirit of God as a grace of God to you today. So at the very least, we have to learn to receive it like that. Now we're fortunate. We're at a church. We've got a fantastic senior pastor. Jeff Wells is a great preacher, great teacher, great man. Guess what? You might not always be in a church with a pastor like that. And if you're not, you don't get to have an excuse and say, well, preaching's not good. Eh, didn't like it. Hey, let's be mature worshipers. Let's grow up and learn how to receive the gift of God with grateful hearts. It's like my kids at dinner. I mean, and this is how I behave. I mean, I'm not saying you, I'm saying us, okay? Take my kid, we sit down at dinner and my wife has spent, let's say it's a Thursday, she spent an hour preparing dinner, it's healthy, it's nutritious, it's delicious, it's balanced, and the kids sit down and they go, eh, I don't like that, I don't like that. And I mean, it, without fail, it's almost every time. And so we're trying to teach them to be grateful recipients of food. Hey buddy, how much time did you spend making that food? Zero. How many dollars did you invest in this meal? Zero. Guess what? I don't want to hear you complaining. You need to learn to be grateful and receive this as a gift. That is the right posture for you, and that's the right posture for us. All right? I'm not, saying, I'm not saying we can't have preferences. I'm not saying we shouldn't insist on excellence. We should. I'm not saying we can't be discerning. I'm saying let's have grateful hearts and not treat this thing as though it's about our entertainment. That's not what this is. So we talk about the greeting. We talk about the preaching and communion. Every week you come here, we have communion. Why do we do this? Well, every element of our public worship should point us to Christ. And, and no element in worship is truer in that way than communion and pointing us to Christ. And the biblical basis is that Jesus, in the upper room, the night before he was betrayed and handed over for crucifixion, he instituted this meal, which we call the Lord's Supper or communion or Eucharist. And he gives bread and wine to his disciples. And he says, hey, listen, when you eat this and you drink this, I want you to do it in remembrance of me and know that I'm coming back for you. And it's by my body that was broken and by my blood that was spilled that you have favor with God. It's because of what I'm about to do for you on the cross that you have any hope of surviving the judgment of God. And it's by these things that instead of the judgment of God, you've received the friendship of God. You've been adopted in the family of God. So Jesus institutes it. Paul reminds us of it in 1 Corinthians 11, the passage we read today. And the Corinthians were botching it. They were coming and they were just mistreating it. And he goes, listen, don't do that. Understand what this is. Have a right understanding of what we're doing here. In communion, we were reminded that it was the very real, entirely physical blood, body and blood of Christ that was broken and poured out for us. 
for the forgiveness of our sins. And here's the deal. Despite our differences in race and color and gender and income and musical preferences and whatever else that makes us different, when we come to the communion table, we come as one family for one meal. Ephesians 4, 5. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, over all, through all, in all. When we come to the communion table, what we're recognizing is we are part of the global church called in by Christ himself and he's done everything required for us to be part of this family and we contribute nothing. We're like the kids at the table. We, we invested nothing. We spent no time and effort. It was given to us as a gift and so that's what we come and we do when we eat here. So here's my question for you. Today, as you take the communion meal, it's going to preach the gospel to you. It's going to remind you of the gospel. It is a physical embodiment of what the gospel means. So for you today, is the gospel good news? Are you going to savor it? Or is it just old news? Yep, I come here every week. Yep, I know the song and dance. Yeah, I've heard it before. I know. Yep, I'm a sinner, need a savior, cross the bridge, da-da-da. Yeah, I get it. Is it good news for you today or is it old news? If it is simply old news for you today, then might I suggest that maybe, maybe for you, it is a bit of a thin belief. It's a thin belief. This is the most transformational, unbelievable, significant, impacting reality on the face of the earth. That's what it is. And we come to it and we're just normalized to it. And so we just get kind of lazy and it becomes old news. So today as we take the meal, let's remember communion for us is a coagulant. It takes something that's thin and it gives it some thickness. It puts viscosity to our faith. That's why Jesus gives us a physical reminder of what he's done. The God we worship is not a thin God. So I'm going to pray for us. And then uh, as I finish praying, communion tables will be open, bread, juice, uh, around the room. So uh, I'm going to pray. And then as you're ready, you come and commune with one another and with God. Father, we're thankful today for your kindness to us. We are so deeply grateful that we who are far away have been brought near to you by the work of Jesus. Father, help us know today in our hearts deeply that none of these elements, the greeting, the preaching, the communion, the things that we're doing here, none of these things will bring us close to you. And all of these things point us to Christ who does bring us close to you. So God, as we take this meal together, would you help us to savor it with a thick belief with a rich understanding of what this means, why we're doing it. Help us, God, not to be cavalier or thoughtless or lazy in taking this meal. God, you've given us this moment as a gift from your hand. It's your provision to us, and we want to receive it with a grateful heart. You've done everything required to make this happen, and we've done nothing. And so we just want to be recipients of your good gift with a posture in our heart that is pleasing to you so that you could cause this to be for our joy and not for our judgment. Spirit, would you fill us, protect us, help us in every way. We need you deeply. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us this week. If you want to learn more about Woods Edge, visit our website at woodsedge.org. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram or Download the church app by going to the App Store on your mobile device and searching Woods Edge, or by going to woodsedge.org 
slash churchout. See you next week. May God bless you richly in the coming week.